Hello and welcome to another episode of By Exclusive Invite Only. This is the Curious Anarchy podcast with myself, Jermaine G, and my co-host, my wonderful co-host, Mark W. How are you, Mark? I'm fine. I'm I'm blessed that it's a sunny day. It's the start of the spring equinox, and I'm sitting down talking to one of the best podcast presenters that there are at the moment on the scene. So, if you're not listening already, please try and listen to Jermaine G in all his forums. Well worth a listen. A host that brings humility, humanity, and humour all to the public forum. So, I'm well blessed. Thank you. Oh, thanks, Mark. Really appreciate that. I'd like to also That's all right. reciprocate the same sentiment. Don't reciprocate on the card because people might be having their breakfast or something. So. <laughs> um, okay, so today we are travelling to... Drumroll, please. Asia! And also, we actually have a, a surprise guest coming along with us today katie hopkins wow <laughs> i'm sure she'd be delighted to join us in asia <laughs> we Wonderful. should put a little package a warning on the package saying you know uh, serious knowledge could seriously damage your standing and 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 uh, level of, of uh, communication with the people for her because it might damage her up till now speak first think years later sort of policy Indeed, indeed. Um, okay, so kind of to preface this, I, I, Asia. Or, so, preface this, we're doing the din- the dinner party. Invite five guests throughout history. This time we're landing in Asia, so we're going to have five guests throughout the history of Asia, and also, I think it's fitting that we do it this week because, as you know around the world, eight Asian people were killed by a horrific uh, gun who, who had nothing but racism on his mind. So it's fitting that we turn to the old, one of the oldest mm-hmm. and most educated cultures in the world at a time when such barbarism happens. So maybe we can start from there, Jermaine. Yeah, it's a good, uh, it's a good point. Um... I also wanted to kind of bring in some of the uh, the legend, the mythology, the culture, um, just the way of being of of Asia, of, of East Asia. Um, observing this through kung fu movies and through other films of, of Asian uh, descent or production. Um, there's there's always a theme to every single film. You're rustling a there's lot. Always, Sorry. There's there's always a theme to every single film that that I've seen that is really okay. about the person developing, growing, becoming more. Whether it's through martial arts or whatever trade or or vocation that it may be. Um, I wanted to begin this one okay. with Kwam Lan. Um, between the 4th and 5th century CE uh, in uh, China. Now, there's a, there's a bit of a debate over whether this person actually existed or not. Um, as the only source of, of her story, 
um, which is famous in China, is called the Ballad of Milan. Now, Milan um, was basically the daughter to someone who's a, a significant figure in the imperial army during the Swedish dynasty. Mm-hmm. And um, basically, what she did is, if anybody has seen the, the film Milan, the, the cartoon animation, um, she's a girl, a young woman, who takes on this this very brave act. Um, as her father was not able to serve in the war um, at one point, so what she did was she basically dressed up as a, as a boy and volunteered. To join the army, um, she went on to be a formidable um, person or soldier, fighter in the army. And um, <laughs> at the end of all of that, um, the the story goes is that the, some of her war buddies came back to uh, to visit her, and they found out that she was a woman. So <laughs> she kind okay. of snuck in there as a mole. Um, in, in order to honour her father, the, the legacy of her father, and um, became this great legend. Um, now, like I say, there's, there's debate around the existence of, um, but it's, it's a very, it ties in with, with the theme of the legend and the mythology and, and the belief behind a lot of what I see from, from Chinese particularly. Um, Chinese culture and tradition. Mark, uh-huh. what about yourself? Okay, so I, 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 um, I, I think it's only right, given the input into the culture of, of the East, that we start with the Buddha. Uh-huh. Um. For two reasons: one, to explore the teachings of the Buddha, but also two, to imagine what an amazing dinner guest he would be. Um, with the levels of enlightenment he has, it would be uh, interesting and baffling at the same time. Um, I think we've done a lot more years after we've spoken to him, and, and we suddenly absorbed what he's saying fully. Um, but just the concept of a man that could give up all his worldly goods, and I'm talking about someone who was born in, into royalty, uh. give up every worldly good to go out into the world, meditate until he under, had some enlightenment, and then to to take his enlightenment across the region so that he could help others. Um, in Western culture, we have a big sense of of the acknowledgement of what Jesus Christ did in terms of his awakening with a, a philosophy and taking it to the people. And it's not quite given the same reverence to the Buddha, which should do. Because if you think about teachings on the planet that have lasted over a thousand years, arguably those are the two biggest long-term philosophies that still exist on the planet. And there's an imbalance in the in the way that they're, they're, they're portrayed. And I put it to people out there. I know people that go to yoga, but has anyone tried to meditate for longer than a day, longer than a week? 
Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And he meditated until he had the enlightenment. So I think he would be an incredible dinner guest um, in all sorts of ways, not just in terms of philosophy, but also in in his behavior. What would he be eating? You know, we know that the Buddha probably wouldn't eat uh, anything meat product, you know, to kill another being. I wonder what his concept of healthy eating would be compared to ours today. How much we've learned and forgotten or vice versa. So I, I, I kind of think I have to start there, really. I mean, yeah, I really do think I have to start there. Who's your second guest, Jamal? Um... Okay, so this one um, is a reference from the book of Five Rings. Okay. Um, written by none other than Miyamoto Masashi. Okay. Now, this gentleman was from Japan. Okay. He was an exceptional, exceptional swordsman one of the greatest that Japan have ever had. Um, and he had his first duel at the age of 13. Now, I think back of uh, when I was 13. <laughs> <laughs> and I think, would I have been ready for warfare? Mm, not quite. <laughs> you know? Uh, yeah. Um now he he travelled all around Japan fighting numerous numerous fighters from different clans. Um, he fought in wars, um, famously against the uh, between the Toyotomi and the Tokugawa clan. Um, okay, and they they lost that war. Um, but one of the uh, legends has it that I, I read from Book of Five Rings is that he was so exceptional with his mind. He would effectively disable an opponent before they even draw their sword. That his approach was he'd 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 <laughs> he'd, he'd do various things. So he might fight with a wooden sword. Um he might fight with um he might turn up late. He might turn up early. Um, he'd do a whole range of things to kind of just frazzle an opponent's mind, just to set them off. And he knows once he's done that, he's got an advantage. Um, so his most famous duel was in 1612, where he fought okay. Sasaki Kojiro and killed him. Like, oh, wow. duels were not a plaything um, in these times. They weren't, oh, if, you're, if you injure someone like that, that's as far as it goes. It's to the death. There's, there's no half-heartedness about it. Um, so yeah, Miyamoto Musashi, I'd like to honour him um, in reference to my days of, of doing jiu-jitsu, um, but also the principles around how he operated and just the, the supremacy of his his uh, warriorship. 
So I'm happy to invite him as long as you sit next to him and I don't have to because I don't want to take him on any level. Absolutely. Um, by the way, I if think, you're listening in... As long um, as you don't not bump into his sword, you're okay. Exactly. <laughs> um, anyone listening in for the first time, you actually can hear what Jermaine was like at 13 on one of our previous podcasts um, in the Ice Caps. Um, Jermaine talks vividly about his life as a teenager. So, you know, do after you're finished here, do go and check that out if you can. Um, my second guest, Jermaine, was born 551 years before Jesus. Mm-hmm. And he's responsible for a philosophy in the East that is still prevalent today. It's not a religious philosophy. It's a philosophy about morality. People often say to me, why are Chinese people and Asian people so different in the way that they behave, in their in their 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 ability to sort of think about the community more? Why why are they not more individual? Mm-hmm. And probably it comes down to this guy, when you think about it. His name, well, he, we know him as Confucius. Um, he obviously had different names to the people he was living around at the time. Um, but it's kind of easier if we talk about, you know, he was born Kong Kui, but I mean, it's easier if we talk about him as Confucius, because most people around the world know him as that and understand his legacy from that name. He he was uh, credited with, with writing the five classic Chinese texts, and there's some discussion whether that's true or not. I, my, my imagination would tell me to believe that other people would probably help him in that. But he, he like has the overall, you know, like uh, respect for doing it, if you like. And he came out with lots of ideas, like, for example, you know, the idea of do unto others what you would do to yourself. Mm-hmm. All these kind of ideas came from him. He's wrote, he wrote a huge book, which, you know, you can still buy in places around the world, which are, are, it's kind of ways to behave. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the, the point being, thinking about family and your friends and your community and thinking about the right thing to do in any situation rather than just doing what you feel like doing. And I think he more than anyone has shaped the the Asian way of thinking as a philosophy, not as a religion. Uh Uh I mean, again, sitting down with someone like that at dinner would be challenging and enlightening at the same time. You know, imagine you try to pass him the potatoes and he perhaps isn't happy with the way you're doing it. There might be whole layers of of, of behaviour that we're not aware of that he was living under. So it'd be interesting. That's my second question. Who's your third guest? Um, my third guest. Hmm. Yeah, who's your third I'm going to <laughs> uh, bring it forward a little bit. Uh, mm. there, there are quite a few significant people um, who have popped up in, let's say, Western um, societies as, as significant. Oh, interesting. Uh, yeah, yeah. Across the world. Um, so. Where is it? Uh... Well, the world. It's the third rock from the sun. 
Hold on a second. Please do not adjust your sets. We're having a te technical difficulty in the south of London. Something like that. <laughs> Let's go with this one. Yeah. Okay. okay. So, uh, yeah. Tomo Goshen, I believe. Okay. It, it might be pronounced. Um, was a famously beautiful samurai warrior. Oh, wow. Um, she fought in Japan's, I think it's pronounced Jinpei War, in 1180 to 1185 CE. And she was, again, much like Miyamoto, known as a, a awesome skillful sword sword woman um, and also she had incredible skills with wild horse breaking and also using mm -hmm. the bow um, she fought alongside her husband Yoshinaka in the Jinpei War um, playing a, a pivotal role in the capture of Kyoto City in Japan um, so Kyoto seems like it, it's been a bit of a, a fought over her in, in any war um, as we know it's the capital of Japan so um, however Yoshinaka's force soon fell to that of his cousin and rival Yoshimori clans different clans <laughs> again this is a very familiar story um, it's unknown what happened to Tomo after Yoshimori took Kyoto but there is one story that she married him and then years later became a nun um, and there's also another story that she she fled the battlefield clutching an enemy's head and was never seen again. Wow, okay, I didn't know that. It, it's a, it's a, okay. Yeah, yeah, it's a, a wonderful story. <laughs> yeah. Wow, okay. Oh, uh, yeah. Wasn't ready for that one. Okay. <laughs> right. Um, I think um, my third guest. I've tried to choose people that I could sit down and have a long, long discussion over dinner with because um, I wanted to enjoy the food and I wanted to enjoy the conversation. And my third one, I think all three have had a profound effect on the region that they live in. Mm -hmm. And so my third guest would be Mount Saitung. Um, Mao Zedong was the revolutionary communist leader of China um, at a time when only the Russian Revolution had properly happened in the world. So he was like the second person to try a revolution separate to the world that we live in. And um, I wonder sitting down with him, what motivated him, what inspired him, and also what generated the thoughts he had. Because once he came to power, much like Stalin, he was very brutal to the people in his own country um, for fear of being overthrown. Mm -hmm. So you know that argument, the best form of defense is attack. Mm -hmm. he, he killed lots of people in his country. And then in 1950s, he did a thing where he forced everyone who had a academic job to go into the countryside and help the poor. Now, that would be a tough task in the United Kingdom, but in a country that has a billion people, 
I mean, one can only imagine what that would have entailed. It led to what they called the Great March, where people were forced into the countryside to help the poor. Oh, wow. And, well, on one level, that's great. On another level, it's it's a shame that he didn't do it through the power of philosophy rather than the power of the gun. Um, but what it led to was, for example, there, in medicine, a lot of people will know about things like the barefoot doctor, or the idea that, that you had doctors in villages, like I'm talking about physicians, not just doctors, like literally physicians in villages. Um, because they were forced to go there. And all these people for fear of death. You know, you, you know, if you argue with Mao, you, Mao thought, like Stalin, if he thought you had eyes on his throne or challenging his, his philosophy, you would be dead. What Mao did, which was interesting, given the scale of the country and the lack of technology they had in those days, mm-hmm. was he wrote a book about the, the p- philosophy behind the communism the Chinese Communist Party and it was known around the world as the Little Red Book and he had all the teachings of the Communist Party which I would see as a kind of miniature version of Confucius teachings he, he kind of wanted to do a, a modern communist version of that um, even when he was dying there was so much fear to try and deal with him that it took a long time for people to even take over um but again, what an interesting dinner guest. Can you imagine sitting down with him and trying to understand where he got his ideas from? Was it from Marx? Was it from Confucius? Where did he get his ideas from? Was it a mixture of all of them? And I, I, the other thing is, I'm just curious what it would feel like to be ruling a country of over a billion people. Mm. I mean, the size alone would be inhibiting. You know, when we talk about basic maths, you know, you've got to provide food for 70 million people in this country. But to do it for one billion people, I don't know how you would start. (laughs) Um, So, he's my third guest. Who's your fourth guest, Jermaine? Um, Yeah, and and China's huge. That's what I'm saying. (laughs) Absolutely ginormous. I mean, absolutely ginormous. Um... Also, I was perhaps slightly unaware that uh, Zhedong had actually founded, or at least co-founded, the Communist Party. I was unaware that he'd actually uh, founded or co-founded the Communist Party of China. Okay. Why why, did you say that then? No, no, I, I, I was aware of some of the significant events that took place under his reign. Um, but I wasn't aware that he'd actually founded the Communist Party, um, which is interesting. Who did you think had? No, I, I don't know. I didn't know. Okay, fine. <laughs> um, I was just discovering that. Um, so my next guest, where are we? Is this number four or three? Four, 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 four. four. Um, wonderful. So we have this kind of leads quite well into this one um joyce chen she is a, a chef restaurateur and author entrepreneur all of those kinds of things she um how can you say introduced the idea of the all you can eat chinese buffet in her restaurant that she opened up in 1958 okay. um she was born in beijing in china in 1917 
and uh, Chen and her family fled to America um, as communists were taking over China. Um, she settled in Massachusetts, uh, where she opened her, her first restaurant, the Joyce Chen restaurant. And um, she was actually honored with her face being on a, a stamp in 2014 by the US Postal Service. Amazing. Amazing. So that was kind of honor her accomplishment um, in the, I guess, the northern style of China, Chinese cuisine um, being embraced. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, she was kind of defined as, as being the person who really brought that sort of the original raw style of Chinese food rather than this sort of hybrid kind of not really authentic <laughs> kind of style of food uh, which is something that um, I often kind of query with like Indian restaurants and Chinese restaurants and restaurants that aren't from the the that are from amalgamations of, of foreign food um, how authentic are they you know um, but yeah she certainly had that authenticity within the, the delivery production of her food. Well, yeah. Great person to have at a dinner party as well, to mm. be fair. Mm. Do you think she'd cook? Or would we not I have think she'd, I think she'd hire people to come in and who she could recommend. You know, like, I think she'd want to have the people um, who, who, uh, who would make a meal that she'd be proud of. Let's put it like that. Mm-hmm. Well, that'd be quite interesting. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, good, because I'm going to bring someone as my fourth guest who's as opposed to that, as opposite to that as you could possibly mention. Okay. And the person I'm going to mention, I'm going to, before I mention them, I'm going to talk about something I only learned a short time ago. When you consider that all your life you get taught these things, it's weird. Um, when I grew up, the Germans in a lot of movies were known as the Hun. Mm-hmm. And I didn't understand what the hell that referred to. And the reference I came to subsequently learn was that they were described in the same way as Attila the Hun in the method of their warfare, which was to annihilate everything and everyone in their way. Okay. So by by thinking of that, um, I wanted to talk about someone uh, who is an amazing warrior um, because he he almost set the tone for for um, battle and he was uh, seen as a great military leader but also someone who finally ended the Roman Empire because up till then the Romans were as organized a unit of army as you could ever find. They had centurions, they marched in forum, they had strategies for warfare in all zones. They defeated Boadicea, who tried to leave an uprising in the United Kingdom by forcing her into certain strategies she didn't want to take because they were that tactical. They were like the uh, Pep Guardiola of, of their day. They were very good at strategies. And Attila the Hun was a leader of the 
Hunic Empire from 434 to 453. But he was, Attila was known to, to the Romans for his brutality and the penchant for sacking and villaging Roman villages. So he brought everything that was the opposite to the Roman Empire to them. They were about organization, they were about control, they were about slaves. And what he brought was complete anarchy. And given that our podcast is called Curious Anarchy, mm-hmm. he's a good person to to um, to reference point. And I think he also led to people like Genghis Khan, uh, you know, other warriors who were untamable. That was the point of them. They would lived in the wild, they were feral, and they were uncontrollable. Um, and I think they represent a certain um, philosophy about being unbeatable. You know, the, the, the concept that you could take on the mighty Roman Empire. I mean, it's difficult to put today, in today's world, how mighty the Roman Empire was. I mean, we talk about Germany in the Second World War because it was so military and so organized. But the Romans were years ahead in the Roman Empire. They had, you know, they built roads and baths. They were so far ahead of the cultures they were in, in Europe, they were conquering, not in, in Africa, but in Europe. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. However, to be destroyed by the equivalent of hooligans was amazing. The, 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 the strength of character of those warriors must have been amazing. And we see it in a lot of movies, because I think you referenced earlier about movies about Japan and China. And we see in a lot of movies that kind of sense of honor and and dying for the cause, which people talk about in the West, but generally speaking, you know, you couldn't imagine soldiers in France and and Holland, etc., during the Second World War committing harikari if they'd failed, or or dive bombing their planes into things to commit suicide. It's just not conceivable. It's a different philosophy. And really, Attila had this philosophy that, that you know, that you, you win or die, basically. Which I think is very predominant in a lot of cultures subsequently. But someone had to start that off. That was the only way to beat the Romans. They'd beaten the best armies around the world. Um, easily, you know. And they had slaves in their country from all over the world. And the first country to properly attack and destroy them was were the Hun. And subsequently, the Germans in the Second World War got called the Hun until Russia and Great Britain stopped their advance. So that would be my fourth guess. I think it would be difficult to have a meal with him because he'd probably be quite the opposite of tame. Um, but I'm sure with Jermaine's wit and repartee, we'd probably get by just about okay. <laughs> Who's your fifth guest? Um. My fifth guest is an actress, a uh, a Taishanese Chinese American actress. Um, she was born in 1905 and and died in 1961. Um, and she was basically she she ascended to, as they call it, kind of superstardom. Um, for her role in silent films and the early color, color films um, that were on the, the, the silver screen, if you like. Um, her, she was born in Los Angeles and uh, the second generation Taishanese, Chinese-American parents. 
Um, now, okay. she became particularly keen, interested um, in film at quite an early age. Um, she actually acted in The Toll of the Sea in 1920. Okay. And uh, that was one of the first movies made in colour. So that would be interesting to kind of watch that film mm. at some point. Yeah. Um, and she became a, a fashion icon, gaining international stardom. Now, she played a lot of stereotypical roles in Hollywood. You can imagine the kind of uh, views and, and, and kind of roles that she may have been playing um, as someone who is seen as Chinese. Um, now, she's, she's Thai Chinese, which is a or one of the how can you call it maybe one of the districts within China there's a particular area or group where if you're from that area you're Thai Chinese Chinese um, which is kind of interesting because do we really have that here in the UK other than oh you're a southerner maybe yeah maybe that's probably kind of the closest yeah, yeah. we've got to it um now, there was one particular moment where, in her career, where she was going for the leading role um, for the character Olan in the film version of Pearl S. Buck, The Good Earth. Now, she lost that role to none other than Louise Rayner. She was a German-American-British actress. And she ended up playing that role in Yellowface. Okay. She won an award for that role, too. So, in the face of all of this, all of this um, discrimination, she battled through that. She travelled, she ended up travelling between America and and Europe, um, speaking film roles, um, and she paid less attention to her career during the Second World War to help the Chinese against Japan. Then she Mm -hmm. returned in the 1950s and appeared in several television appearances. And um, yeah, that was kind of her her life. Um, Pretty much a a struggle for the East Asian in the Western society trying to achieve her dream. So Anna Mae Wong, Amazing dinner guest that would be. Yeah. Oh, that'd be incredible. Um, my last guest. Well, for my last guest, I'm wondering how a butterfly survives in the jungle with lions. There's a couple of things in, in the world that confuse me immensely. The first is how Switzerland managed to remain neutral during the Second World War. Like, did both sides agree that they would just ignore the fact that it was sitting there in the middle of Europe and leave it alone? I don't know. How does that work? You know, it's like, imagine a big fight at your school and there's one kid in the middle just sitting there eating a sandwich and you go, no, leave him, he's not involved. It's like, what? Okay. Um, and the other one is the Dalai Lama. I want, to, I want to invite the Dalai Lama to the, to the meal because I'm just really confused about how in a world of violence and poverty and 
uh, injustice, there sits a man who calmly meditates, even though his country has been invaded by China, and offers only spiritual and peaceful resistance. And it just makes me wonder how you achieve that, how you how you keep that. I want to say the word calm, but it's beyond calm. It's way beyond calm. Mm. When you, you know, you're on a boat and it's a bit choppy, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about how you sit in a world like this and somehow rise above it. And to my understanding, Dalai Lamas are picked when they're children, like they're very young, often as young as two years old. People will be like, this is the next Dalai Lama. And the idea being carrying on the Buddhist um, line, lineage. Can you imagine, your son's three, imagine your son being told he's the next Buddha, what that would entail. Because I've seen in so many movies, people fixate on this, the image of this young boy with such a spiritual um, burden. Because in theory, spirituality shouldn't be a burden, but, but to be the spiritual leader of the world, you know, to be the spirit in a soulless world, that's a big job. And at three, you know, being taken away from your friends and family and brought up in a manner that gives you serenity and enlightenment. I don't know. I think that'd be amazing. I mean, what a dinner guest. Can you imagine talking to him? <laughs> Again, much like some of the others we've got, we probably realised years later what they meant when they said something. <laughs> I don't think we do it at the time. You know what? Even what, when you said, can you... What, what, on, what, what you've just said is, is actually quite beautiful. Um, because, like, when when we think of children, we think of that sort of innocence, that naivety, yeah, that sort yeah. of this sense of yeah. everything being new, that novelty. And um, I I genuinely feel that from my son. <laughs> you know, I, I feel inspired by him, um, and it's it's wonderful. I I can kind of understand how <laughs> how that kind of works. Um, okay. I'm not sure whether I would, you know, sort of put him up and out there as, you know, the leader of the <laughs> spiritual world. But, you know, I, I, I don't know if I'd want to kind of hand him over. <laughs> that's my point, really. That's my you point. Know, that's, that's, yeah, that's, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't really sit with me. But um, I think, you know, that, again, it's, it's a cultural thing. Um, <laughs> it kind of brings a whole new meaning to... to uh, what is it? The it takes a village to raise a child. Yeah, 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 yeah. Absolutely, hundred <laughs> percent. And the other thing is sitting down with someone like that. In my head, I've got an image where I say something like, "Excuse me, could you pass the reggae reggae sauce?" <laughs> and the response would be, "Isn't it?" And then years later, I might understand why they said that. But at the time, I've got no idea what you're talking about. He's just like, yeah, uh, okay, thank you. Okay. I'll get myself, thank you. But it's like you don't get what they're thinking when they say it because they're so many light years ahead of what you're thinking. Yeah. Because I suppose the, the counter argument to Buddhism is we think on a very, I want to use the word guttural level. So we think on basic needs, mm-hmm. Maslow's uh, theories of needs. So we think about what we need. I'm hungry, I want food, I'm thirsty, I want a drink. And you kind of get the impression that people like this don't think like that. They think more about things like how you can have peace and harmony in the universe. 
Yeah. For sure. See, the, the concept of someone like him sitting down and waiting until someone brought him a sandwich, say, hmm. not going out and making it himself, but waiting for someone to bring it to him. It's just something most of us could not conceptualize. <laughs> yeah? So, like, understanding how that feels, the burden of having that, but also the, the, I'm thinking like a balloon lifting up, you know, that, that kind of raise that you get out of it that most human beings wouldn't have. You know, I remember in the 60s, lots of people taking all sorts of drugs to try and get that level of enlightenment, and all they got was stone. They didn't reach that level because they weren't prepared to put in the, you know, they wanted to go to work on Monday. <laughs> they weren't prepared to sit for five years under a tree. <laughs> I'm not saying they should or shouldn't, I'm just saying that, you know, they, it was like having a manual to do something, like trying to be a, I don't know, how to fix a computer with just a one-sheet manual. You know, it's just like, what do you hope you're going to achieve from that? Um, but having someone like that at the dinner table would be, wow, just mad. I mean, just, just you know, because I watch you very often on podcasts and, and on live asking people questions. And my head runs to if you were asking the Dalai Lama a question, you know, like... Uh, do you think it's a good idea to have vaccination, for example? And I know he's had one, but that's not the point. I'm thinking his answer probably wouldn't relate at all to the to the vaccination at all. But to some think miles and miles away from that. And then you've got to backtrack for the next ten years to understand what he meant. <laughs> so it will be interesting, that's for certain. <laughs> one of those slow burners. <laughs> well, what I'm acutely aware of is uh, uh, when we've tackled the subject today, how deep in philosophy and ideas and um, so it's not just philosophy, it's also practices. They How deep into practice. I remember once someone saying to me they'd gone to see the Kung Fu Shaolin exhibition in the, um, you know, the tour of the UK. Amazing. And someone says, oh, I'd really like to do that. And then someone saying to him, do you know, they train from a child to do those moves. Yeah. And the whole of their lives to achieve that. Literally, yeah. Yeah. So what I'm saying is, in the West, we tend to shortcut these things. You want to do it in three weeks, sort of thing. We don't understand the, the, the whole practice side, that you dedicate your life to a practice. Most people say, oh, you can't, you know, like, just even wearing a mask in this country, it's like you know, half the people won't even bother doing it. You know, why should I? It's lack of freedom. You know, they don't get the sense of discipline and practice. And I'm not saying they should. I'm not trying to be critical of anyone. Yeah. I'm saying it's about an understanding. Both sides, it's about an understanding. And what strikes me is that, that you know, you've got cultures here that have been around for thousands of years, have learned so much more about the planet than we have. And in the case of China, I mean, they didn't even open their doors until the Second World War. Mm. Until Japan invaded them around the Second World War, they, they'd been a closed-off country for over 3,000 years. So all the people knew was from books by people like Marco Polo. So 
that has effect on all the regions. I mean, you know, who knew that, that for example, um, the Philippines, was it the Philippines? Or Malaysia, that, that's got like 3,000 islands. It's, it's not a country, it's 3,000 islands. You know, when you talk about New Zealand being an island, or two islands, they've got like 3,000 islands. Or that, you know, people I know will refer to Siam and not know where it is. Not know that the modern day Siam is uh, Thailand, for example. Yeah. You know, so the, our knowledge of the, the East is, is immensely embarrassing. Immensely embarrassing. It's a, as bad a knowledge as people that supported Brexit's, Brexit's knowledge of, of our uh, empire, what it really did. You know, the, we should be ashamed of the lack of knowledge we have compared to the knowledge these cultures have. For sure. I have to second that. Um, um, yeah. But I think that's that's by design. I think, you know, there's reasons why we we know, for example, a lot of the kids growing up today will know about the Wild West in America because that's what the GCSE is. Yeah. But it should be so much wider and broader than that. And when I was teaching in school, it's a shame that, that history has been so sidelined. Um, it's such a minor subject. When, when I was at school, it was such a major subject to talk about history. And even then, we didn't learn a quarter of what, we, what I've learned since. But I reckon at this dinner table, we definitely would learn, a hundred percent. Sure, hundred percent. And and I can uh, <clears throat> absolutely expect our uninvited guest. Well, I say uninvited. <laughs> Katie Hopkins, <laughs> our uh, our guest who who made it uh, with us to Asia. Um, she would certainly learn a thing or two. Which is why I said to you in the beginning that she, uh, you know, it might go against the grain of what, how she normally talks to people um, to learn such knowledge. Um, she, she'd shout for the first 10 minutes and then I would imagine she'd be silent for the next hour because what the kind of ideas that would be on the table would be on her patience and knowledge levels. So, um, it would be interesting for her to learn. And it's just a real shame that people like her don't have that opportunity to experience proper knowledge in the world and do this, uh, what I'd call pot noodle knowledge. <laughs> You've been listening to another wonderful episode of um, the Curious Anarchy podcast, this time um, by invited guests only about the Asian continent. We hope we've done it I wouldn't say justice, but we've done a reasonable job, I hope. Yeah. And we hope that we, you can walk away this week and think and have ideas from what we've been discussing. I've been the person talking to Jermaine G. And I've been the person talking to Mark W. And we thank you for listening. See you next time. Take care. Have a great one.